Hello and welcome to the program UFO Warning. In this episode, we're looking at a 1966 Ohio police UFO chase. That's correct, 1966 Ohio police UFO chase. Now, the story really has it all. You have police chasing a UFO, you've got a mass sighting, and a government cover-up to boot. The article that we're looking at was written back March 31st, 2004 by James Renner. Uh, the title says, Strangers in the Night. In 1966, Ohio cops chased a UFO into Pennsylvania. Then the government got involved and things got really weird. Now you can find this at clevescene.com. I'll have the links up there, buy me a coffee. Uh, thanks to all the folks that contribute over there. Uh, it's great. And also thank you to the people that uh, contribute at the Spotify website. It really helps the program. And while I'm at it, go ahead and hit that uh, like, subscribe, follow button. It really also helps with the program. Now the article begins, it says April 17th, 1966, 5 a.m. Chief Gerald Burkert is on patrol in Mantua when the Portage County Sheriff's Department sends word over the radio for its deputies to look for lights in the sky, last seen headed east. Burkert races home to wake his wife and grab his camera. Joan Burkert is still groggy as Gerald leads her from the house, babbling excitedly but making little sense. She becomes annoyed with his refusal to explain why she must venture outside in her bathrobe before sunrise. She stops complaining abruptly as he points into the dark, cloudless sky. An object resembling two tea saucers joined together hovers not far from their yard light. Light emanates from it, but it makes no sound. Then it moves slowly and deliberately to the east, tilting and tipping along the way. Girl snaps a couple photos before the object moves out of sight. At about the same time near Ravina, Portage County Deputy Dale Spower and Wilbur Barney Neff are investigating a car abandoned at the side of a rural road. The vehicle appears to be filled with radio equipment. Painted on the side is a triangle with a lightning bolt through it and the words, Seven Steps to Hell. From behind, they hear a strange electrical humming sound. They turn and watch in amazement as a saucer-shaped craft, perhaps 50 feet long and 20-some feet high, rises slowly from behind the trees and hovers in the air. A bright light shines from the bottom, bathing the ground. Squinting, the officers make out what appears to be a dome on top and a protrusion like a thick antenna. So here we have two officers chasing this thing. A couple more spot it from the ground where, while they're investigating this abandoned car filled with, filled with radio equipment, by the way. And on the, sign, a, on the side of the door, a painted triangle with a lightning bolt and the word seven steps to hell. Now, how's that for strangeness? The article goes on and says, from behind they hear a strange electrical humming sound. They turn and watch in amazement as a saucer-shaped craft, perhaps 50 feet long and 20-some feet high, rises slowly from behind the trees and hovers in the air. A bright light shines through from the bottom, bathing the ground. Squinting, the officers make out what appears to be a dome on top and a protrusion like a thick antenna. Sparrow remembers his radio and reports what he's seeing. After a confused exchange, the dispatcher advises the officers to shoot it down so they'll be able to prove the story. Sparrow draws his gun hesitantly and makes and aims it at the craft. Now that's some good advice there. Not shoot first, ask questions later. But then the craft suddenly starts hauling butt to the east. Spire and Neff scramble back to their car and give chase. Half an hour later, Spire and Neff are miles out of their jurisdiction, racing down dark rural roads at speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour. Near the Pennsylvania border, Officer Wayne Houston of the East Palestine PD joins the chase, which continues over the state line. 
Even as the impending dawn pales the sky, the lights of the strange craft remain distinct. Back in Ravenna, the dispatcher calls an air traffic control tower in Pittsburgh. While they are on the phone, Spire Radio is in to say that there are already two fighter jets in the sky flying toward the craft. Another Portage County deputy also sees three jets moving to intercept. So now we have five deputies on the scene, uh, three of which at least are reporting seeing jets that are intercepting this UFO. At about 6.15 a.m., Spire Neff's car sputters. It's running on fumes. They pull into a Conway, Pennsylvania service station where Officer Frank Penzella stands drinking coffee watching the object sail by. Well, so two cops pull in to get the gas, to get the car filled up with gas, and they see another officer, Officer Frank Penzanella, standing there drinking coffee while the, while the object sailed by. That's hilarious to me. So two of these cops are chasing this thing 100 mile an hour down the road, Another one's just simply standing there drinking coffee and watching a flyby. Moments later, Spire, Neff, Houston, and Pazella listen as their radios pick up chatter between pilots who are chasing the craft. As they catch sight of it below them, the saucer accelerates rapidly, heading straight up this time and disappears. So they're watching it from the ground. The pilots are seeing it from the air. They're talking about it. And then it says, as they catch sight of it below them, the saucer accelerates rapidly, heading straight up this time and disappears. So the, 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 the pilots, they see this thing in the air and they watch it go straight up and disappear. When residents at Mantua, a small community in Portage County called the police during the 1960s, the phone rang in Gerald Bertrand's house. As kids, we weren't supposed to touch that phone, says his son, Harry Bertrand. For a while, it was a one-man police department. So he was it, 24 hours a day. My dad was very dedicated to the police department. It prob- it's probably what caused his death. Gerald Burchard was still police, was still chief of police when he suffered a brain aneurysm in 1986. In life, the chief was known for his stubbornness. If he thought something was right, he wouldn't back down, recalls Johnny's wife, but he'd be forced to make an exception publicly at least, amid the furor touched off by his close encounter. The next morning, the plain dealer and three other papers carried stories about the high-speed two-state chase. The PD quoted Bertrand as saying, The object was round when I looked straight up at it when it moved to the left. I feel like an idiot saying this. It looked like a saucer, like two table saucers put together. The attention from the local media was only the beginning. Tiny Mantua and other parts of Portage County were soon overrun with reporters from all over. The UFO phenomenon was already decades old in 1966, but this sighting was one of the most dramatic and seemingly credible coming from police officers ever reported. It was like we set off a bomb in this town, recalls Joan Bertrand. My husband lost 20 pounds in three days. Harry remembers the endless phone calls and knocks on the door. It was three days of living hell. Bertrand wasted no time in getting his film developed. He was known for working by a simple code, cover your butt, and that's what the photo would do, or so he thought. When he was finally satisfied that he'd captured an image of the craft, he called the Cleveland office of the FBI. An agent referred him to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton. When he was finally satisfied that he'd captured an image of the craft, he called the Cleveland office of the FBI. An agent referred him to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton. Bertrand relayed what he'd seen and was told that someone would be in touch. Major Hector Quintelia called the next morning. In addition to the incident, they discussed the photograph. The major told Bertrand he could release a grainy copy of the photo to the press, but that he should send the negatives directly to himself. The chief readily agreed. There you go. Sounds like he's already fallen into the trap. Only later did this seemingly routine request begin to look like a setup. As it turned out, photographic evidence and vivid eyewitness accounts would mean little to the Air Force. From his office at Wright-Patterson, Quintilia released a statement. 
Burkert's film was severely fogged, he wrote, and the fuzzy image on it was nothing more exciting than a processing defect. So the very people that this police officer trusted, well, you can fill in the blanks. Furthermore, he said his experts concluded that the officers had chased a stationary object, the planet Venus, warped by atmospheric conditions. Nothing unusual appeared on radar, he said, and no fighter jets were sent up. The press abruptly backed off, but the cops were incensed. They were hardworking men, devoted to their jobs, and respected in their towns. And the United States government had just told the world that they were stupid enough to have chased the planet from Ravenna to the outskirts of Pittsburgh. Bertrand later documented his frustration. Quote, I was advised that what I saw was probably only the planet Venus as it was in that general area. He wrote on April 22, 1966. I asked Major Quintella if it was a planet Venus, then how come it moved up and down and to the side? I at one time kept the wires from the telephone pole in view, and the object did go below the wires and then above them. The wires were not moving. I was advised by Major that this was due to the atmospheric conditions, most likely. And who could refute that? Quintilla had an, had an authority on such mistaken identity cases, civilian astronomer Dr. J. Allen Heineck working for him. But it would later become clear that Heineck had been out of the loop on this one. Well, we know what this was. This was simply a cover-up. Even after the reporters had left Mantua and the excitement had died down, Bertrand felt as if, Bertrand felt as if everyone in town was looking at him funny. He almost resigned. Over time, he learned to live with notoriety, but he never forgot. In a scrapbook, he kept every report, every newspaper article, every scrap of information pertaining to the day that he couldn't bring himself to discuss. Harry has that scrapbook now. He keeps it in his office at the Matua Police Station, where he has served as chief since his father's death. For years, he has wanted nothing more than to find some way to clear his father's name. This would be no small feat. Given the time that's gone by and the official conclusion of the Air Force, but Harry was has some unlikely allies, the sons of the government officials. Harry can tell his earliest memories are of his father, Hector, getting ready for work, donning his Air Force uniform, sliding a, a firearm into his shoulder holster, handcuffing a briefcase to his wrist. In the early 1960s, Hector Quintilia had been a security officer for the Air Force out of Rome, New York. But after declining assignments related to escalating conflict in Vietnam, Hector worried about leaving his family and perhaps not returning. He wound up in Ohio chasing flying saucers. Apparently, as punishment for defying his superiors, Hector Quintella was assigned to Project Blue Book, the Air Force's investigation into unidentified flying objects conducted at Wright-Patterson from 1952 to 1969. According to the Blue Book manual, the project had two missions. First, to determine whether UFOs pose a threat to the security of the United States, and second, to determine whether UFOs exhibit any unique scientific information or advanced technology which, which could contribute to scientific or technical research. Quintella was a skeptic. Though willing to accept the possibility of other civilizations, he believed that the disputes between our world and others were far too great to diverse. Whether his superiors knew this or cared isn't clear, but skepticism has definitely but skepticism was definitely an asset. The Air Force wanted rational explanations for the thousands of UFO sightings that were being reported each year, and Quintella was reported to provide them. I don't know if I would say rational explanations so much as they just wanted to cover this thing up, and they found somebody who already had uh, the attitude of a skeptic, so why not put him in there? 
Unfortunately, investigating possible alien encounters was not a nine to five job. He got called often enough it was in the middle of the night, Carl recalls. He was always grumbling, moaning about it. Sometimes he would go himself and sometimes he would send Heineck. Dr. Alan Heineck had been a professor of astronomy at Ohio State and Ohio Westland in 1948. And when witnesses in Western Kentucky, including the commander of Goldman Air Force Base, reported seeing a craft that looked like an ice cream cone topped with red, Air Force officials theorized that what they had really seen was the planet Venus. Amazingly enough, low on the horizon through fog, what they lacked was a respected civilian who could back up these claims for a fearful panic. In other words, we got to get a authority figure or somebody who appears to be an expert, just their authority figure because of their expertise, get them in there and, and pacify the serfs. So they called the closest astronomer, says Paul Heineck, the doctor's son. They needed a person in the field to say it was bunk. This suited Dr. Heineck just fine. He relished the challenge of of overcoming panic with science, and he was consulting on UFO cases when you, when Contella was assigned to you Blue Book. Yes, follow the science. We all know how well that works. Our house had all these relics, recalls Paul Heine. My bedroom, much to my chagrin, was the biggest UFO library in the country. We were a normal suburban family, but there were all these incongruous things Though we had a Christmas tree, but most of the bulbs were UFOs. People used to ask Dad if he believed in UFOs, says Scott Heineck, Paul, Paul's younger brother. He challenged the word believe. I haven't seen a whale, he would say, but you wouldn't ask me if I believe in whales. There are enough reports of them to be there are enough reports of them to believe they exist. Then eventually he saw a whale and couldn't say that anymore. There were also the phone calls. Answering them became a favorite pastime of the Heineck kids. Sometimes it was a guy calling himself Prince Michael of the Proceeds, and another would warn that solar movements were indicating that their father's life was in danger. The phone would frequently ring at dinner, says Scott Heine. He would always take the call. A certain amount of these people were crazy, some weren't. It was hard to tell the difference, but if you're in a car and it suddenly stops and you see something in the sky, you're going to seem strange even to people who know you. He gave a chance to he gave people a chance to tell their stories. Over the years, Dr. Heineck was able to explain away nearly every reported sighting. Hector Contello was haunted, however, by the unexplained two or three percent. Heineck empathized, but the unresolved cases were a source of tension. Dad sort of felt that Blue Book was a dead-end job for Air Force personnel, says Scott Heineck. It was their job to make us feel safe about what was going on in the sky. But sometimes they wanted to fit a square peg into a round hole. Carl Quintella recalls meeting Dr. Heineck once when his father brought the scientists home for dinner. Even then, he knew that the men were at odds. My father felt Heineck was exploiting the subject for his own notoriety. In other words, when Dr. Heineck would go to a press conference, it wasn't within the exact line my father wanted. Henry Quintella worried that someday there would be a dramatic, credible sighting that Heineck would not be able to dismiss as Venus or an airplane. Such a scenario could ruin his career. Obviously, the UFO phenomena was just a case of overactive imaginations, but that 2%, one of those. Why couldn't the astronomer just do his job? So you see, you can see where this uh, army major is really torn about whether or not to believe in UFOs. Obviously, he knows these stories can't all be false, that many of the stories he's investigating, these encounters, these sightings, uh, clearly something's going on here, but still he feels compelled to trot out Heineck to debunk these things. All right, it goes on a little bit here, and then it says, uh, Joan Bertrand recalls the well-dressed man from the Air Force is friendly. She sat had he, we sat and had coffee, she says. They discussed the picture. They discussed, 
they discussed the priest. The priest was the head of St. Joseph's Church in Mantua. The Burkitts cannot remember his name, only that he had come to Gerald and said that he too had seen the object. Another highly credible witness, another thorn in Quintella's side. After this visit, the Air Force became highly involved, Harry Burkett says. We were bombarded by calls at home. My dad had more meetings with the Air Force. They were trying to tell him it was a weather balloon. He couldn't change their minds. You just surrendered to it eventually. On May 10th, Quintella conducted taped interviews with Spire and Neff, their boss, Sheriff Ross Dustman, and dispatcher Robert Wilson. The transcript shows that Quintella seemed to alternate between the Venus and weather balloon explanations, but remained adamant that officers had not seen anything out of the ordinary. He denied that the Air Force jets had been dispatched, insisting that nothing had shown up on radar. Silent through most of the interview, Dustman spoke up near the end, apparently out of frustration. Well, I feel this way about it. It's too damn bad that these things are running around through our sky over our heads and the United States Air Force and the government doesn't know what's going on out there because there's too many of them and there's too many people who have seen it. Dozens of civilians claim to have seen the craft as well. What does the Air Force think about? Think these things are, Major Wilson said. Misinterpretations of conventional objects and natural phenomena, Quintella responded. What categories does this go under? What Dale saw? Place it under the category of satellite or atmospheric observations. Dustman, well, I'm sorry it's turned out this way because I know a lot of people have come to me and they saw the same thing and there's too many people involved for this to be a mirage or somebody's imagination. Soon after, Quintella returned to his base. Chief Bertrand was ready to call it quits. The mayor was annoyed with him and everyone else was giving him sideways glances. The only reason he stayed on with the job was I made a call to his mom and dad, John Bertrand says. It was a frank phone call. His parents had a big impact on him. I don't know what they said to him, but he was better afterwards. When a plane dealer reporter came calling about six months later, Bertrand turned him away. It's something that should be forgotten, he explained, appearing nervous. Officer Neff also declined to be interviewed, but his wife spoke. I hope I never see him like he was after the chase, she says. He was real white, almost in a state of shock. It was awful, and people made fun of him afterwards. He never talks about it anymore. Once he told me that if that thing landed in my backyard, I wouldn't tell a soul. He'd been through the ringer. Today he lives in Florida with two of them, Taco Bell dogs. He can talk about it now, though he refers not to. When I left Ohio, I got away from it all, he says. I don't look up anymore. I look down. I just want to forget. But he stands by his story. So does Officer Wayne Houston, who left his job in East Palestine, moved out west and started going by his middle name, Harold. People track him down occasionally, he says, and he's gracious, but won't dredge up the past. In the aftermath, he took a lot of heat for leaving his town unprotected to join the chase. The chief of police and I didn't get along. The incident didn't help. I really don't want to go further than that. Pennsylvania officer Frank Panzella refused to be interviewed. He is not known to have recanted any part of his account. Del Spire fared the worst, perhaps because he was alone among the cops who saw the UFO again about two months later. He lost weight and began disappearing for days at a time. He left his job and his wife. Six months after the chase, a PD reporter found him living in a motel and salon, gaunt and destitute. I have become a freak, he said in his last known interview. I'm so lonely. Look at me, 34 years old, and what do I have? Nothing. Who knows me? To everyone, I'm Del Spire, the nut who chased a flying saucer. I know Dale had a lot of problems after that, but I'm not sure they were all caused by the UFOs, as Henry Schoenfeld, who was a sergeant who advised Spire enough not to shoot at the object. 
all the problems that occurred in his life after that, he blamed on it. I can't agree with that. We all have to accept responsibility for our own actions. Still, he adds, I never doubted what happened, not for one second. As recently as two years ago, Spire had a small house in Rocky River. His mail was forwarded to a post office box in West Virginia, but his whereabouts are unknown. During Major Hector Cantillo's interview with the police officers, one of them asked, What did you do that got you this kind of a job? I really don't know, Cantillo responded. I've often asked myself that question. Whether the historically skeptical major was moved at all by his interviews with the officers is not known. In any case, it did not affect his ruling. The Venus explanation stood. But not everyone was willing to accept it. In May 1966, the National Investigative Com Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, then a 10-year-old civilian run organization, took an interest in the case. Investigator William Witzel picked up where Quint Quintanilla had left off, collecting every report and newspaper article he could find, and re-interviewing Spower several times. The most intriguing piece, however, came from Dr. J. Allen Hynek, the Air Force consultant. Heineck noted that Venus had risen at 3:35 that morning and would have been too high in the sky by the time the sightings by the time of the sightings to be mistaken for an aircraft. So after all this investigations done, after going out and have the press conferences, after basically calling these people liars in their community, making fun of them, uh, traumatizing them, they take the time to look and find out, well, it couldn't have been planet Venus because Venus would have been too high in the sky to be where they're saying that they see this UFO at. It says, Quintillo was free. He retired from the Air Force not long after and focused on golf until a golf, until a golf cart accident left him with head injuries from which he never fully recovered. He died in 1997, but he lived long enough to see his son Carl follow in his footsteps in a manner of speaking. After working as a cameraman on game shows and soap operas, Carl Quintella began editing UFO documentaries. His best-known work to date is, is a sci-fi network show on Bob Lazar, a physicist who claims to have worked on a top-secret reverse engineering project involving a captured UFO stored at a government base in the Nevada desert. Carl told his father about Lazar, and he said, That's not the government, but be careful, Carl recalls. I think he was suggesting that there were other parties interested. A black operation, maybe not the government, but it comes to the government, but it comes to the government in the end. Now that's weird. So he tells his kid to be careful doing this UFO show. He says, That's not the government, but be careful. Well, what do you always talk about? The deep state, the government behind the government. In January, Carl received a scanned version of the photograph through email after viewing the digitally enhanced image carl was not inclined to dismiss it as a processing glitch as his father had done in 1966. the longer i look at it the more fascinated i become carl says in the enhanced picture it does have the classic saucer shape there's a classic tilt forward like the craft i've seen in the lazar video with all due respect to my father in the air force given the fact that the police were tracking this thing at 103 mile per hour saying it's venus is a stretch after Blue Book folded, a disillusioned Dr. Heineck moved his family to Chicago and, funded, and founded the Center for UFO Studies. Uninhibited by government overseers, he spent the rest of his years applying the scientific method to reports of sightings from around the country. In 1976, a young Steven Spielberg hired Heineck as a consultant for a movie. Its title, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, borrowed a phrase Heineck had coined. A scene near the beginning in which the police chase UFOs through rural Indiana in the middle of the night it is an homage to the 1966 Ohio-Pennsylvania incident. Dr. Heineck died in 1986. And then it goes on and talks a little bit about his kid. 
Wow. So this is really just a, a fascinating case where you have these multiple police agencies, multiple officers chasing this flying saucer uh, through the sky, uh, through Ohio, across into the Pennsylvania, across the state line. And they all agree on what they saw. And then the government brings in Project Blue Book, its Air Force officer, Dr. Heineck, to uh, discount and debunk what these guys saw. And, of course, we proved, we proved later the government was wrong. It couldn't have been the planet Venus. It wasn't possible. Venus, it wasn't the right time for Venus, for the planet to be where they say they saw this saucer at. These guys know what they saw. Now, they don't have an image here of the picture this guy took. We can imagine that the original images have probably been confiscated a long time ago by some deep state agency. Another thing I find fascinating about this is at the end of this article about, about Contella telling his son to be careful. It's not the government. It's not the government, but be careful. You know, it's not the government in a lot of things. It's it's not our government, I think, that's keeping people from finding out what's going on about cattle mutilations or abductions or implants or any of this stuff. It's something bigger than our government. That's what I think. Until next time, this is UFO Warning. Over and out.